Hi, everybody. Nice to be back with you all. I heard Joe did a great job last week, as usual, Dr. Joe. Um, so we start with a little bit of housekeeping, so to speak. Yeah, 17 weeks we've been doing this. Wow, I had no idea it was going to go on this long, which is great. It's actually quite fun. I enjoy it a lot. Um, so a couple things housekeeping-wise. Um, tomorrow we're releasing the interview I did with Chris Wallace who I think you will agree is a pretty interesting character, at least obviously on the nightclub format. Amazing Sanskrit scholar um, and practitioner. So I had a really fun time. This is a long one, I think two hours we chatted. Um, and so I'm quite excited to share that all with you because Chris is a really subtle thinker. And it's a delight for me to kind of, kind of cross-pollinate with, you know, Kashmir Shaivism, um, which is what he represents, Nandula Shaiva Tantra. Um, so that, that's coming up. That's fun. Um, Andy sent uh, the idea of, of tweaking the time a little bit because there's, it's always a, a big challenge, like what's the best time to do this? One of the reasons I'm missing some of the daytime stuff is I have you know, daytime commitments, people work. So we really want your feedback about shifting this thing to like 6.30 p.m. So people who are working um, can join us. Uh, live. And so we're thinking about doing this to make it more accessible for them and also make it a little bit more available for me um, as I have, you know, daytime commitments and the like. So let us know what you think along those lines. We'll probably try a change and just see how it goes over. Um, so stay tuned on that. Um, what else do I have to say? Uh, I wanted to, in terms of I guess that's it in terms of housekeeping. In terms of sharing um, stuff that I come across or things to see conversation, I, I simply wanted to read something. Um, I get the New York Times Sunday, this massive <laughs> collection of news and reviews, and, and I really groove on it. And I came across this thing that I wanted to read to you because I, I, I actually found it quite illuminating. And it was, it's on neurodiversity, which uh, is, is a new term for me. I mean, this, you know, there's so many neural things these days. Neuroplasticity, neurotheology, neuroanthropology, neuropsychology. I personally, maybe it's my limitation, had not heard of neurodiversity before. And so I just wanted to read this because I, I, I was quite taken by this. So this is from the Sunday Times, just a, a couple paragraphs. In 1993, Jim Sinclair, one of the founders of the Autism Network International, spoke at the, this particular conference. His focus was on a sentiment that was often expressed by parents of children with autism, a sense of loss upon learning their child wasn't, so to speak, normal. And this is what he said. This is quite moving. You didn't lose a child to autism, he said. You lost the child because the child you waited for never came into existence. That isn't the fault of the autistic child who does exist, and it shouldn't be our burden. Grieve if you must for your own lost dreams, he added, but don't mourn for us. We are alive, we are real, and we're here waiting for you. Beautiful. And then there's another little thing here about how this became a, a kind of a turn, turnkey event. And then there's another statement by this uh, scholar, neurodiversity affirms that everyone deserves to be accepted and included for who they are. Um, and this entire section in the New York Times is all about so-called people with 
disabilities. And, and so I, I just found that really touching, honestly. Um, the way we impose our dreams onto others and, and uh, therefore lose um, contact with reality. But the other thing I, I did want to share that's a little bit more playful, personal, is I, I did share this yesterday with the, with the group um, discussion that we had on, on the nightclub site, where I had this really cool dream. I do want to share this because this leads into a topic. I had a pretty cool lucid dream um, yesterday, and then actually kind of a follow-up dream this morning, slightly similar in spirit. And what constituted the dream was I, I've been reading a fair amount recently in the, the neuroscientific community and also in, in the spiritual traditions about um, this really compelling notion how perception is creation. Perception is creation. Uh, that we don't passively represent an objective pre-existing world out there, that we, we highly actively co-construct it. Um, in fact, there isn't one sense faculty that is not radically involved in the construction of our world. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't something out there, um, because to say that we just completely construct everything, that's solipsism, that's a philosophical error, that definitely no matter what the new agers say, you create your reality, well, not quite. You co-create it, you enact it, you bring it forth. There is something out there what philosophers refer, refer to as relational reality. There is something out there. For the Buddhists who are listening, this is the, what's called paratantra, the dependent nature and the three natures. But we don't see that properly. We, we perceive uh, relational reality, what in Buddhist terms would be called paracopita or the imaginary nature. And so the way this ties into my dream um, was, and I'll, I'm going to read a, a one or two lines from a cognitive neuroscientist to show you just how far this goes. Because I think if you really wrap your mind around these principles, they, it, it can really rock your world a little bit that, you know, you, you don't really see reality. You see your version of reality um, in, in a literally sensorial way. I mean, every single one of our senses um, constructs our version of reality. And so what I was doing in this dream was uh, I woke up in a dream, it was lucid, and I said, I'm just going to try this experiment. And so what I did was I, I um, took whatever object was available in the dream, which for some reason just happened to me, my thumb. It was, it was kind of hysterical, actually. And so, so I brought my thumb, my dream thumb, because of course there is no thumb in there, right? I, I'm creating that. This, by the way, is where, where solipsism is virtually absolute. We do create, in this sense, we do create our realities, mostly. And so it's a really great way to work with this notion of perception as creation. And so what I did, um, based on some stuff I've been reading, was I looked at my thumb and I really focused on it. It's like a form of shamatha meditation. I really intently brought my awareness to this thumb that I had already created. And um, then what I did is in staring at this thing is I tried to make it as, as real as I could, which means I, I really, you know, I really just stared at this thing. And I, I wasn't thinking of this at the time, but I thought about it when I woke up. It reminds me of the times when I, when I used to smoke pot. I, I'm not much of a drug person. It just doesn't do much for me. But I have done the usual experimentation thing and I used to smoke some pot. 
Um, and I remember just hysterically, as I'm sure anybody who's tried it, you know, those instances where, you know, like you look at your watch, you know, and you're hanging out with your other doped out friend and you both are like just completely grooving on this watch, just utterly oblivious to the fact that you're like completely spaced out and involved in this ridiculous thing. And so it felt like retrospectively, it felt like that, you know, so like, I was like totally grooving on my dream. thumb. I said, well, this is, this is like being high in my dream. And then what I tried to do is I try to infuse my dream thumb with as much reality as I could. It's like, it's like I'm, I'm not going to waver. I'm just going to stare this thing down, so to speak. And, I, and as I kept looking at it, it was kind of wild. As I kept looking at my thumb, my thumb got bigger to the point where it, it kind of occupied the entirety of my visual field because originally it was just out here. And then as I continued to focus on it, it got bigger. Um, I could actually start to read all the like little fingerprint, thumbprint lines in it. And it started to glow, which was kind of awesome. Um, and so it actually became, it, it, I was able to turn it, even though it was just this little miniature scene, um, I was actually able to turn my, my thumb, my dream thumb into a hyper lucid dream thumb, where my dream thumb was actually more real than this puppy, where I'm looking at it and it's just incredibly vibrant. And it's like pulsating with light. It, it you know, it was a little bit more orangey. I'm not sure where the orange came from. Um, but it was a really kind of a cool experiment where it's like, okay, I'm going to make this sucker just as real as I possibly can. And, and so, I mean, I just throw that into the mix as a way uh, to experiment. If, for those of you who, who do things like work with lucid dreaming, these are just one of the kind of tasks that you can do in a lucid dream. And, and this one, again, I, I had never come across any instructions to do this sort of thing, but I've been reading about this stuff. Um, and I decided I would just kind of give it a crack and it was pretty cool. And then, you know, I woke up usually when these are like, uh, powerful dreams like that, they almost always for me tend to occur just right before I wake up. And so I woke up right out of it and that's why I could remember it so incredibly clearly. I probably would have regardless because it was like this big blazing light in the middle of the night. Um, but for those of you who have, uh, some inclination to work with lucid dreams, this is something you can kind of play around with. And so I just wanted to share along these lines, and I want to say more about this um, if I remember in the upcoming weeks, because some of the principles around this inactivism, this co-creation um, of our reality is, is actually a, a pretty darn big deal, as you might suspect, because it's, it's really the basis fundamentally of all our suffering, that we don't see the world the way it really is. I mean, um, Immanuel Kant in the West, in Western philosophical thought, he was the real major first Western philosopher to riff on this in a huge way. Um, and since his, you know, his monumental influence in the West, there's been a lot of further sophisticated philosophical refinements, and then most specifically some neuroscientific findings. Um, and so I just wanted to share a couple things from, um, I referenced this guy's work before, Donald Hoffman, this really clever cognitive neuroscientist. And um, after I had this dream, I pulled his book out again, uh, which is called Visual Intelligence, How We Create What We See. And I just wanted to share one or two riffs that he has here around this that is, is really, I think, potentially quite revelatory in terms of how it is that we go about um, basically bringing forth our world. So this is one thing he says. He says, without exception, everything you see, you construct. 
color, shading, texture, motion, shape, visual objects, depth perception, the entire visual scene. Um, and so again, this is the, this is the, re, the phenomenal sense. We, we have to make this clear right off the start because otherwise we fall into the new age trap that you create your reality. Well, you, you don't, you co-create it. Um, and so we have to make the separation between relational reality, dependent nature, what's actually out there. That's a, a, an incredibly interesting topic as well. What is it that actually lies behind the scenes? Khan said you couldn't know that. He said that was inaccessible to us. The spiritual traditions say, no, not quite. We can, in fact, access that. And that's one way to talk about what the enlightened state actually is. It's the discovery of this foundational reality before it's colored with all our hopes, fears, projections, imputations, and the like. And so, again, the reason I toss this out is, is this level of construction takes place at so many different levels. I mean, first of all, there's the, the sub-completely unconscious um, processes that take place to bring forth what we just assume, when, and it's a wrong assumption, to be an existing independent world out there. Uh, that world is already, already highly constructed. And then on top of that are all these other secondary, tertiary, quaternary construction projects, where upon that foundational construction project, we then impute, project our hopes and fears and, and basically all our adverse relationships to the world altogether. And, and as far as I can tell in my experience on the path, the path is largely one of deconstruction. It's one of recursing, of, of actually chipping away at all these what are called adventitious defilements, these secondary stains, and then fundamentally kind of recursing, re-linking re literally back to this original matrix. And so, you know, we, we fundamentally live in this, this uh, vastly constructed world of our own making, completely oblivious to the fact that we do so. And so, Let's see, what else do I have here? Um, oh yeah, here it is. So I have a couple more from um, Donald. And again, this guy, this guy's just a hard hitting scientist. The sobering fact is that we cannot dispense with construction. To construct is the essence of vision. And then he says, all senses, even the sense of touch. We think that, oh yeah, this might be true with the brain, with the vision and all these other things that we construct that. But you know, I, I know when I'm touching the world, I'm touching what's real. And that's not even the case. And what he does then in really interesting section is he talks about things like phantom limbs um, and how people that have you know, amputated limbs can feel um, exactly as if they still had that limb. And so even the sense of taction, the sense of touch that we take to be, to be so foundational is actually not foundational. Even that is constructed. So dispense with construction and you dispense with vision. Everything you see, everything you experience by sight is your construction. And then one more thing here. And I'm gonna come back next week. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to this if I, hopefully I'll remember, note to self. I wanna take this even a step further and talk about how all this, how all this um, applies to what's called non-contextual realism, which is the idea that has been fiercely debated in the um, scientific philosophical community that, you know, like when I'm not looking at the moon, for instance, what's happening to the moon, right? So what, when I'm not, like even behind me, like right now you can see something I can't, even behind me, 
what's actually really existing for me back there right now? Um, and I want to talk more about this next week because when, when you kind of wrap your mind around this idea of what's called non-contextual realism, it's a bit of a mind bender that in literally in the blink of an eye, the minute you open your eyes, the minute you turn, that world appears for you that exact same instant. And, and so when you really work with this as a type of contemplation, it's, it's a little bit haunting. It's a little bit um, compelling. And the, re the reason I bring it in relation to the thumb exercise is it really can show you the connection of dream, the nighttime dream to the daytime dream. Because exactly the same process takes place when we're dreaming. Like when you're in a dream, until you actually turn around in the dream, and, and again, I've done these types of experiments, like spinning around in the stuff, there is no dream reality for you behind you. It's, it, there's just nothing there, in this case, literally. But the minute you turn in the dream, you enact, you bring forth, you construct this world instantly in the dream. And we do something in a slightly more diluted way, even here, right now. Um, and so I wanna to return to this next week because, uh, in fact, I'll even try to pose it as a contemplation. Um, because when you kind of sink and wrap your mind around this one, it, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, revelatory and um, actually unsettling. So, okay, what does he say here? And then we can open it up. Um, oh, yeah, this is good. Whether walking in the woods, driving in a car, sitting with friends at a party, you never get three dimensions at the eye, only two. So you face a principled ambiguity each time you need to see depth. This ambiguity is a special case of the fundamental problem of vision. And then what he does is he goes through these really cool kind of maxims um, uh, for how it is, these kind of rules of perception. What are the rules that actually underlie perception? And so this is one of the things he says, the fundamental problem of seeing depth. The image at the eye has two dimensions. Therefore, it has countless interpretations into three. So this is really, in itself, is super interesting. Like we, we perceive, like right now, when you're looking at your room, everything that's hitting your eye is, is being registered two-dimensionally. So your three-dimensional world is being created with lightning speed right here, right now. Um, at a depth that we don't even understand. So this is what he says. This is as true of the two eyes as of one and of dynamic images as of static. They have countless interpretations in three dimensions. It follows that any time you see depth, you construct it. Not just when you're using some of these things like Necker cubes and the like. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of throw that out into the mix for now. Um, it's also something that uh, I riff on a ton in, in this book that's being released in a couple of weeks. I have a, an entire section on just this type of co-construction of our world. So anyway, that's my little kind of introductory riff for today. Um, at this point, you know what we do here, if you're new to this gig, is we just um, talk, chat. That's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so questions, offerings, challenges, and the like. Um, doesn't always have to be a question, by the way. You know, we've gotten some terrific poems and, and offerings from other people who just might want to um, share along those lines. So the rest of the time is, is yours in this regard. So fire away. Well, let's start with some of the written questions from your last virtual hangout. Oh, this, okay. This is from Lisa. 
how is the indestructible, very subtle body different from soul? Also, if our nature is not self, why is it that our karmic continuum stays with us? Why is our karma and consciousness individualized if we are not separate? <laughs> yeah, so we start with the easy questions. Okay, so there's like three or four questions here. So let's, let's take them apart one by one. Start with the first one, Andy. Sure thing. How is the indestructible, very subtle body different from soul? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's start right there. So indestructible body, machik patigle, um, first of all, body is a slight, slight misnomer here. Um, it's really indestructible continuum. So right there, you can kind of tease apart how this is different from soul. Um, if you were to equate the two, you know, if you're trying to find correlations as a comparative theologian, yeah, you could probably say this is as close as you're gonna to get to comparing soul to Buddhist version of soul, the indestructible body. But it's not a body, um, it's a continuum. And so this indestructible continuum, this is not something that's easy to define. Um, the only way to really understand the nature of the indestructible continuum is to understand the foundational teachings in Buddhism, which are the teachings on emptiness. Everything, in my opinion, in Buddhism, circumambulates these core teachings on emptiness. It's in many ways the, the, the great contribution of this tradition. And so this poses a little bit of a challenge for me because, uh, because it is of such centrality and is such a large, massive topic. Um, you know, literally some scholars say two thirds of the, of the doctrinal exposition of the Buddha is devoted to this topic, two thirds. So this is not exactly something I can ping and answer rather quickly. But the only way you can understand even some of the other questions that, that Andy can circle back into, like karma, um, rebirth, any, any of those things, they, they simply cannot be grokked if you don't have an understanding of these fundamental tenets of emptiness. Absolutely indispensable. And the reason some of the, the questions that you're even asking are, bar, are brought up is because it, it's uh, revelatory of the profound limitations of thought that, uh, and this is, a, this is a really big, important topic um, in philosophy. Wittgenstein talked a lot, I mean, many of the world's really sensitive philosophers have talked about the extraordinary power of language to actually work in constructing our world. And so um, this battery of questions is, that this is, these are really big questions. So to really understand emptiness, first of all, you have to change the way you think. That's how foundational it is. Um, we think in terms of things. That's almost axiomatic. We think in terms of things. There are no things. That's what emptiness is, no thingness. So thinking itself, language itself, can only take you so far on this diving board of conceptuality. And then you have to jump um, because otherwise you're just going to be stuck at, at the level of language, at the level of map, and you're never going to wrap your mind around this thing. And so really to understand things like machikpa tigle, so-called soul, emptiness, karma, some of the things that, that you're intimating in your question, you first of all have to change the way you think. Um, and I always throw into the mix here what the Nobel laureate, Brian Joseph, some physicist Nobel laureate said, you know, we think that we think clearly, <laughs> but that's only because we don't think clearly. Um, and so just because the topic is so huge, I, I'm not sure how much farther down the rabbit hole I want to go. Um, but maybe we can start 
by throwing that out there and, and you can maybe finish the rest of the question, Andy, and I'll see what else comes to mind. Sure. Also, if our nature is not self, why is it that our karma continuum stays with us? Why is our karma and conscience? Right there, stop. Okay, stop right there. Um, well, it doesn't stay with you. So that's the other thing. <laughs> it doesn't stay with you. And in fact, there is no you right now. Um, oh, Lordy. Yeah. These are great questions. I am not poo-pooing these questions. It's just one of the limitations of this particular format is that when, when questions are delivered that are so deep and so vast, there's only so far I can go with them. But fundamentally, right off the bat, even the way the question is addressed actually poses a, a number of errors. And I have to throw this out into the mix. This, this is not what's called sophistry. This is not philosophical parlor games. This is rigorous analytical dialectic meditation debate that, that is not only in the philosophical traditions, but also in Buddhism. If you really want to work with this stuff, you have to study the work of Nagarjuna, his processes of the dialectic. Um, there are so many ways that one really has to refine even the nature of the question itself. So the fact that the question is posited using things like us is revelatory. It's revealing that you're thinking that there is an us there isn't there isn't a you there isn't a self there isn't an us that in itself is is a fallacious imputation you know that's a projection that's a construct that's not what's there and so oh you know apology to how far i can go with this um and also homage to the depth of the question the only thing i can say in, in such a short period of time is if you really want to understand the stuff let me direct you towards the teachings on the garjana um in particular, what's called the Mula Madhyamaka Karaka, the, probably the greatest text written after the death of the Buddha. In fact, sometimes Nagarjuna is considered the second Buddha, um, a philosopher and thinker of such import and subtlety and sophistication that, that he really, uh, really refined the trajectory of Buddha's thought altogether. And philosophers still really work with this guy in his, his, his thinking. So the, the fundamental entrance to the middle way, the Mula Majamaka Karakas, you have to understand that. On a more, perhaps more accessible level, you know, the teachings of my, one of my main teachers, Kempo Tsultrum, Gyamso Rinpoche, progressive stages of meditation on emptiness. These are the places where you have to go to understand the stuff. Because otherwise you're gonna bring thing-based thinking into process oriented phenomenology. And they're they're, at that level, they're ir irreconcilable. And so what Nagarjuna did, and then I'll let this all go because again, ooh, this is a huge rabbit hole. What Nagarjuna did was he didn't assert anything. He doesn't, didn't posit any view of reality. What he did was would take exactly like these questions and he would non-affirmingly negate everything. He would just show in incredibly kind of lawyer-like fashion with his razor, sharp intellect, the logical inconsistencies in everything that is actually being presented. And again, this is not parlor game stuff. He would actually pull the rug out of whatever argument was brought to him, eventually leaving the person, in this case, the questioner, with nothing. And that's the point. You're just left in vast open space, which is a first direct experience of this. So, uh, yeah, maybe not the best question to start with on one level because it's, it's I mean, in many ways it is the best because it's the crux. But um, for the purposes of time, I hope you appreciate and understand there's only so far I can go with, with questions of such depth. 
Um, so, you know, maybe I'll let just that slide for now and, and direct you to those sources. I love this stuff. I could riff on this. I mean, just really, um, I just so enjoy these types of questions and where they take us. But just for the purposes of time, that's probably all I can do with it. I'd also like to hear at the end, we can offer Joseph. Joseph is a very sharp uh, debater along these lines. And if he has something to throw into the mix along this, more than welcome to make an offering. But uh, maybe I'll let that one go for now. Super good questions. Um, challenge the way you think, challenge the way you look at the world, challenge your language constructs, challenge the way you even ask your questions, and then you'll start to get to the answers next week. Okay? All right. And I see Joseph has his hand raised, so I'm sure I'll have some. Yeah. Time. Yeah. All right. Um, this question is from Charles Lee. Uh, what are one or two Buddhist takes on physician aid and dying for yeah. the ill? Depends on who you talk to, Charles Lee. This is a, a one of the more contentious arenas in, in uh, well, just not Buddhism and everything. Some of the more traditional people will tell you that um, any level of euthanasia slash suicide um, is to be um, avoided because, you know, the logic is we have an extremely precious human life and that even in situations of tremendous suffering at the end of life, we can still use these situations to purify habits, to purify karma, to wake up. More uh, kind of iconoclastic, open, well, I wouldn't say open is not the right word, but more contemporaneous thinkers, they're a little bit more open-minded to that. Um, the way I play with this, where I land with this, is the difference between active and passive euthanasia. So active euthanasia, you know, the Kevorkian thing, um, that's pretty much discouraged. Um, again, not in all schools, but in most schools. Um, not in all schools, but most schools. I, I write a little bit about this, Charles Lee, in the very beginning of my book, Preparing to Die. I have a riff on exactly this topic. I also have a riff on this topic in the section on suicide and um, the four laws of transitional karma that take place here. But for us, the perhaps the most salient point is the difference between active and passive euthanasia. Passive euthanasia is actually okay in most of the, with most of the teachers I've talked to. And it's certainly um, what I would do if I had the choice. And passive euthanasia is you just stop eating and drinking um, and you let nature run its course. That, the teachers say, does not have adverse karmic implications. So suicide, major no-no across the board in most traditions, but again, not all. There is a place in some traditions for what's called religious suicide. Um, some writers talk about different traditions where certain forms of suicide are actually you know, somewhat okay. Most of the traditions I talk to say categorically no. Um, active euthanasia, mostly no. Passive euthanasia, most people that I've talked to, except for the real hardcore traditionals, traditionalists say that that's okay. So something like that. This is um, a chat question from today's chat from Deborah. Um, but if we were to see the real world, what does it look like? What does it feel like? I think I sometimes get it, but dot, dot, dot. Oh, Lordy. So again, I'm not, here's, here's another chance for me to put up my lemonade stand. A huge part of this book that's coming out, literally, we're, the, we're clicking the clock, to, uh, less than two weeks, Dreams of Light. I talk a ton about this. I mean, like, ah, maybe 90% of the book is on this stuff. 
I have an entire chapter in that book on exactly this question. Um, what does it look like to see the world in an awakened way? And so what I do in this chapter is I use the, the really compelling statements of six or seven really sensitive thinkers, Kralik Rinpoche, Pema Chodron, Laka Rinpoche, um, a few other really cool people that kind of bring different lenses, different facets of how it is to see the world in this way. Um, but what I can tell you, it is, it is radically different from the way we see the world now. And I will just say one thing about this and then direct you to the book, because again, you know, this is a, almost a 380 page book. Two thirds, three fourths of this book is exactly on this topic. So you can see it's a big one. But I'll say one thing very briefly, that it, it, it's a revolution in knowing. It's a revolution in, in cognition, perception, epistemology. You, you, literally, you literally do not see the world in the same way at all. Um, right now, we see the world dualistically. It's just a given, right? Um, all the stuff is out there. I'm in here. Subject, object, act of consciousness, connecting the two. No, consciousness doesn't connect. Consciousness actually separates. So the fact that you see this world right now, which is just a given, that level of perception is completely transcended. You, you get to this radical, very difficult to describe state that the nocturnal practices, by the way, can really work with you on this, where um, what's called threefold purity, subject dissolves, seeing the world subject, object, consciousness between, that's called threefold impurity. That's transformed into threefold purity, which means there's no longer a subject, there's no longer an object, that's non-duality, and there's therefore no longer consciousness separating the two. There's just wisdom reflexively aware. So I can tell you in words what it's like. It's just basically reflexively aware wisdom, but that doesn't really have a lot of meaning. Um, fundamentally, you, you perceive you, unquote, because there is no you, you perceive the world in a completely non-dualistic way where the world fundamentally knows itself. No subject, no object, no consciousness. The world just is reflexively aware. It just knows itself. No thinker, um, no dreamer, nobody, nothing. That's again why emptiness comes into play. But the kicker here is by becoming nothing, you become everything. So that's the good news, right? You disappear. You disappear because you never existed anyway. And you're, you are replaced by the cosmos. Your body is literally replaced by the universe. So you become nothing, and then you also simultaneously become everything. You literally, literally become the universe. So that's what it's like. Pretty clear, huh? Got it? <laughs> so my whole book is about this. I mean, I'm not kidding. This is why I wrote the book. Um, so this, you know, these are prescient comments, statements that give me a chance to put on my lemonade stand about my book, Dreams of Light. It's all about this topic really, most importantly, with a bunch of meditations for how to get a glimpse of this, really subtle practices of like, okay, well, how can I even get a taste of this? And so I guide you through a bunch of practices that can give you a sense of it. Um, so maybe the best I can do with, you know, I'll, I'll sort of, outside of reading 300 pages. So um, I'll let that one go for now. <laughs> let's, uh, let's jump over to some of the live questions. There's quite a few hands raised. Okay, cool. All right, so we'll start with Katie. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Katie, nice to see you. Nice to see, nice you. To see my constructed version of you. 
folks. I, I first just want to thank you so much for your writings and your teachings. Um, I have your book on pre-order and I'm super excited. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that very much. Thanks. I've been rereading Dream Yoga just to kind of like catch up to where hopefully the new book will start. Thanks for that. Yeah, and um, you know, I've I've been drawn to Tibetan Buddhism because it has been such a clear map of experiences that I had prior to any awareness of Tibetan Yeah, Buddhism. me too, yeah. Um, and so I'm always curious about kind of where my experiences are in the map of Tibetan Buddhism. So mm -hmm. I have a question around that and then a follow-up as well. So um, I've been having more transcendent meditative experiences in the liminal space in between dreaming and awakeness. Okay. And um, really extraordinary blissful experiences. Cool. But also with the awareness of of my ego or my physical self. So with, with both, like where I'm okay. in a very meditative space and also having an awareness that I mm -hmm. have a body and a form and an ego. And I feel like based on what I've read, it, it feels like maybe that's some Bogakaya. Could be. The, the experience itself, yes. Very, very well could be. Yep. Okay. Um, and what I've noticed with, with this particular experience is that sometimes there's like, like I don't want to go back into the physical right. body. Like I don't want to go back into the physical form. Like it just feels right. so beautiful and blissful to be right. in this transcendent state. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I want to be able to bring that energy with me or that yeah. experience with me into the physical form. And that's kind of where I have a, a little bit of a, mm -hmm. of a disconnect. I can tell I'm not fully embodying these states, right? I'm, right. I can go there and be there, but I'm not really fully embodying them, right. not able to bring them back. So, so I was kind of having that curiosity while in one of these states of like, is, something, is there something I can do while in this state that will help to carry it through? Yeah, great questions, Katie. Good for you. So a number of things come to mind. Um, you know, first of all, these types of experiences are, are they can be really, really helpful. They're they're kind of pointing out experiences. Uh, you know, the term yam, I use that term a lot, N Y A M meditation experience. These things are great. They they really are kind of uh, breakthrough experiences where you touch into the nature of things. But they they also carry a very subtle. Um, double edge because then you you can somehow start to associate that with what real spirituality is and that everything that isn't that isn't spiritual and so therefore then what happens is you unwittingly set a new metric a new bar for your meditation and you also also uh, very subtly and again this is the the more profound the experience the more subtle the traps you can also create a very subtle insidious um what's called cosmological dualism which is another way of saying what I just said, where you think that, oh, this, this juicy experience is what it means to be spiritual. The rest of this isn't spiritual, so I need to get rid of that to be, to be with that. No, what you need to do is recognize the material to actually be spiritual. Because when you're actually having this experience, whether you call it Sambhogakaya or whatever, when you're actually having that, you're simply tuning in to the nature of reality as it is right here, right now. 
And so, you know, you're not really trying to get somewhere else, like to stabilize that experience as a different domain. You're simply, you're trying to bring about a sense of recognition and stability. And I, this is somewhat a prescient statement because I got into this conversation with Chris Wallace. Again, we're going to post this on nightclub tomorrow. We talked about this quite a bit. You know, like I asked him some of the questions that are being asked to me, you know, how do you know when you have this awakened experience? How do you stabilize it? And so I'm throwing that out because I highly recommend you listen to that talk because Chris and I get into this quite a bit. It's a really important conversation. But the things that I think that are most important for us is that um, the most important thing is to realize that when the material is seen properly, it is spiritual. There is nothing but the spiritual. There's nothing but the awakened state. There is only nirvana. Um, what we assume to be samsara material form in the world of suffering is simply not seeing nirvana completely. We're not seeing it purely. And so this is super important because then the, then the point is not a subtle escapism hitting the FedEx you know, button to get to some spiritual space. The entire issue is recognition. And this is why I so groove on, on Chris's book, The Recognition Sutras. It's exactly about this topic. That it's basically what you're looking for is hiding in plain sight. It's right here, right now. And so what we do then is we take these really juicy experiences. And then, like you're saying perfectly, Katie, is that the, the practice is, in fact, to embody them. And the way we embody them is to use that perfume, that pointing out, that taste, that glimpse, as, as, a, as a, a moment of authentic recognition of what's more real. Whether it's ultimate real, real or not, I'm not going to go into that. Um, maybe, maybe not. That's not really the point. The point is to take that insight and in a certain way, bring it to outside. In other words, realize that if you were to open right here, right now, and see what's in front of you properly, that experience would be available to you all the time. Does that make sense? So, so the, the path is really one of increased recognition, increased familiarity. Literally, that's why the, the word for meditation in the Tibetan tradition is literally to become familiar with, gom. So to become familiar with these states and simultaneously recognizing them embedded in everything. Um, and so when I, let me just say this, I talked about this with Chris and then I'll direct you to the conversation. Um, I mentioned to Chris this really famous statement from Houston Smith, this comparative religious perennial philosopher scholar, where he said, you know, the, the process of the path is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. That has some real provisional validity. You had a flash, right? Mm -hmm. And so now it's like, well, how do, I, how do I keep that light on? And what Chris said was really, really insightful. He said, you know, that, that you have to be careful with a statement like that. Because then what it means, this is just another way of saying everything I said, then it somehow means that you have to find that light somewhere else. And that light, it's always on, it's always there. We just have to recognize it. Does that make sense? Is that landing with you a little bit? It does. And it just, I guess it feels more challenging to recognize it when I'm awake than when I'm asleep or dreaming or in a liminal space. Yeah, and that's not, that's not uncommon because when, when you fall asleep, um, your ego falls apart the constructive narrative of the ego falls apart. And so therefore, in these more translucent, liminal, porous states, you have, a, you have a heightened opportunity to experience these sorts of things. Because, you know, the ego, if, you, if the ego didn't go offline, you would never fall asleep. So it temporarily goes offline, you have the opportunity to see it. 
Um, and then, you know, what brings about stability around this, Katie, is, is what we call the path. You know, that's what the path is because um, we have these habits, you know, you even mentioned it when you're experiencing it, you're having this kind of these flashes of contraction that, that still make you think you have a body, you still have an ego. Those are still solid levels of habituation to contraction that may need to be released. So, you know, you take, the, you take that glimmer, um, use it as transmission, don't get attached to it, right? Because then, then that's going to turn into a trap. Let it go, reinstate the conditions that brought it about, which is its quality of openness. And then, and then fundamentally just carry on, carry on. And, and there's, there's a really famous story here that's worth throwing into the mix where, um, I think it was Gampopa, a, a really great meditation master came to his teacher, Milarepa. And over you know, a certain period of time, like he would come see his teacher, Milarepa, one week. And he would say, oh, Milarepa, you know, I, I, I saw the entire mandala chakra samvara. I experienced the bliss beyond gods, you know, blah, 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 the most amazing things. And Milarepa would say, neither good nor bad, just continue. Mm -hmm. Gampopa would come back next week. Oh, Milarepa, my practice is for crap. I can't do anything. I've lost everything. I'm a total schmuck. I'm a loser. Milarepa would say, neither good nor bad, just continue, right? That's the point, just the constancy. Don't get derailed by the highs. Don't get derailed by the lows. Mm -hmm. Just keep going. And then eventually what you'll find is the highs and the lows will balance out where you'll actually start to see that there's, there's fundamentally no difference. Even when you're feeling totally like crap and nothing's working and it's a total failure, you actually start to realize that that is just as enlightened as when you're in this ecstatic Sambhogakaya space. It's exactly the same in essence. And that's where eventually you want to go. Does that make sense? That's the path. And that's not so easy for us Westerners because we enter this path to feel good. Otherwise, why would we do it, right? <laughs> I want to do this because I want to feel good. And so you have a real good feel good experience It's great. But that's also the minute that happens, if that's not related to properly, that's where the problems start. That's where the real traps start because that's spiritual, this ain't. And then you're really, you know, you're basically creating a subtle duality. So use it as a transmission, pat yourself on the back. Don't take it too seriously. Let it go. And then, you know, you know, you're getting somewhere when the next time you get a raging headache or you're really sick, you can relate to that the same way you relate to the bliss. Then, you know, you're getting somewhere. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to be a downer, but this whole thing is a letdown. You know, it's like, it's like uh, Suzuki Roshi said, you know, enlightenment was my biggest disappointment. Um, yeah, there are glimpses, like I mentioned all the time, there are glimpses of Hollywood, but it's more like Kansas. It's more like Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Great comments. Always. Till next time. All right. And uh, next up, we'll hear from Courtney. Let's make hey sure we get <clears throat> Joseph online too. Hey, Courtney. Mm -hmm. Oh, Joseph's probably using it. Mm -hmm. He can wait. He, Joseph. Joseph can practice some sopa, some patience. <laughs> I think he's got <laughs> Far away. Okay. This is a two-part question. Okay. Let me start up. I'll start with the easy one. Emptiness. You said it. Huh? Em emptiness is always easy. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. Cakewalk. Um, so what I read was there's these four, I, I don't know the words, the proper words, four negations. 
and that if you hold the first two in mind, the second two fall away. So like yeah, true, not true, uh, like yeah, double negative, positive. Yeah, it's called the katush koti or the tetralema. Uh huh. Got it. My challenge to you is: I wonder if you could find or create a contrast exercise that we could pull onto our cushion. I like your notion of contrast because sure, you know, and like so for what for what for what purpose, Courtney? To, to a con I like the idea, but say more. So a contrast exercise to bring about a quality of maybe a taste of emptiness, kind of thing. Well, that's the instruction on how to experience emptiness, as I understand it. Just or to create stability in it. And the first two held in mind at the same time, kind of dismantle the following two. Correct. May or may not. So, so I'm hearing two things from you, Courtney. I just want some clarity. So one, on one level, I'm hearing a more kind of cognitive debate type thing. On another level, I'm hearing more, is there like a more experiential type meditation thing, contrasting that I can do? Which, so which it starts at the, I read, so the cognitive debate. But what I'm asking you is, is there a way to do that experientially? Because I can read it until I'm going oh, sure. to Oh, absolutely. Oh, totally. Yeah. In fact, on one level, you don't need the, the logics and the dialectics and all that. You, on, really, on one level, you don't need those. Um, they're just a, another form of really skillful means, especially for most Westerners who tend to be more analytic, rigorous, you know, thinkers. Fundamentally, you don't need this. Um, you find you just need to open. But because of the grip of conceptual mind, the grip of logic, the grip of thing thinking is so vice-like that sometimes you'd bring in these crowbars. And that's what Nagarjuna and all these sophisticated thinkers did. They brought in these really powerful intellectual crowbars. Okay, so now I have a crowbar, how do I use it? How do you use what? The, the crowbar. Well, it depends on what you're directing it towards, right? So if you're directing it towards, you know, kind of an intellectual cognitive approach, mm -hmm. yeah, then you then there's one way to use a crowbar there. If you're using a crowbar in a more experiential way, then there's a whole different set of practices there. You know, I mean, anything fundamentally that will open you. So here's one thing. Let me see if this lands with you because you mentioned the word contrast. Um, there's a particular exercise that that uh, I was trained to do um, in a family called Maitri Space Awareness. You may know some of these. And this is actually not a bad one, where you lie down on the floor and for a period of about a minute, you just tense up every conceivable muscle, grit your teeth, slam your eyes shut, make your body just as tense, almost like you're having a seizure. Do that with as much ferocity and contraction as you can for you know a minute or two. Also like my normal state. There you go. <laughs> yeah, just amp that up. <laughs> and then just drop, just drop. And in that moment of dropping, um, just that's when you can glimpse it. That's when you can open it. That's when you can open it. You want to do it? Let's do it real quick right now. This is the, this is the way Sagna Rinpoche does it. You want to do it? Let's do it together. Okay. Sure. No, this is true. And we can do this without getting in trouble. So those of you who are watching, this is the way Sagna Rinpoche does this, right? So what we're gonna do, so you're gonna do the same thing I'm doing for just a few seconds. We're just gonna go blah, 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 making all kinds of moves, move around, blah, 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 bring your hands up, bring your hands up. 
and then drop. One more time. Drop. There it is. There it is. Okay. <laughs> Second question. I'll work with that. Um, yeah, it's a good one. Perception is creation. Okay. So. The question isn't fully formed yet. So there are three points. Uh, after my first weekend, I was walking in the canal with my pup and I looked up cause it was kind of up, you know, grassy hill. And there was a kid laying there in like camo, like kind of sneaking and looking up at the top of the, where the canal where the people actually walked. And I was like, how many times have I not seen that? So that was weird. Uh, the second one, eyes give depth perception. Oh, that was a note. Um, the other one is like, how is it that we agree that is a wall, right? I know some people can go through them. Um, and when they say enlightenment is completely ordinary, <clears throat> does this simply mean that you don't apply concepts like there's a tree and there's bark and there's, you know, oh. No, it means that you're, it, it means you're not stuck in the concepts. It transcends what includes. And this is an important point. You still have access to tree. You still have access to concept. You still have access to thought. You, you don't get rid of it. You transcend but include it. In other words, you're no longer stuck at that level. And so therefore, you can still discriminate. You can still um, talk very articulately. In fact, even more than before. You can still engage in all the things you engaged in before. But now none of it sticks, none of it's reified, none of it's solid. Um, it's still engaged as skillful means, but it's not mistaken to be something that is fundamentally not, see? So you still have access to everything. You still have, you know, you, you, in a certain way, you could say that meditation and the awakened state doesn't change a thing. It just changes the way you relate and perceive everything, see? So you still have recourse, you still have access to everything. You still have access. You said that word perceive again. And again, I perceive this is a wall. You impute to that to be a wall. That's but I don't have a third eye, perhaps third dimension. Maybe that's why I was going with that. The, I don't understand the third eye thing. What's that 3D, about? 3D, seeing in 3D or seeing in colors or those Mahasiddha uh, traits. Well, you do, but that eye just isn't open, you know? So if you're using that metaphor, you have that eye. It's just, the aperture is just too closed. And so what we're doing, if you're using that analogy, is you just want to open the aperture of your awareness. You want to open that third eye to realize what's been hiding in plain sight all along. And then that so-called wall will still, in a certain real sense, that will still be there. But your relationship to it will have changed dramatically. Um, and you'll be able to see it in a uh, completely new light, radically new light. Is that third eye in the heart? Well, again, you know, it depends on the system that you talk about, you know, some systems literally talk about it as, as being here. Um, sometimes like the, the, the essence is in the heart center. Fundamentally, it's non-locatable. It, it's you know, sense, you, right? Just a... 
Yes, these are all provisional. These are just training wheels. Fundamentally, it's not here, it's not there, it's everywhere. But we use these as certain what are called power spots uh, to penetrate vital points and that sort of thing. But fundamentally, yeah. you know, you don't want to you don't want to get too focalized even around that. Yeah, right? I'm stuck on form. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want Thank Joe you. to step in. Thank you, Courtney. I really appreciate it. As usual, terrific questions. I know Joe's been waiting in the background, but I, I want him to come online and, and uh, offer something. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah. There you go. Hi. Well, um, uh, Andrew said that uh, I was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to practice patience. But he said the Tibetan word Sopa. And interestingly, the retreat center where we both did our three year retreat was called Sopa Choling, the meditation uh -huh. place, the Dharma place of patience. Forbearance, yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Forbearance and patience. Similar. Um, my only thought was when we were talking about, uh, you were talking about um, seeing and the two-dimensionality, and it, it reminded me of uh, in, at Natarta, where we, we both studied debate, um, and also analytical meditation. Right. The practice of uh, looking with, with a certain intentionality uh, and I, I remember looking and seeing um, this person in front of me and her pants, and I, it registered in my mind as corduroy, uh, with a, a kind of a narrow. I don't. I don't know what you call the the, the bands, but uh, narrow, right. Right. narrow uh, bands of corduroy. And when we got up and I got a closer look, they were very narrow stripes. Oh, wow, yeah. Just slightly different color. Right. Which gave the impression of the depth of corduroy. And, and so um, we, you know, as, as Andrew was saying, light is coming in through, uh, in, the, in the tradition, uh, uh, Pramana tradition, there's the sense object, the sense organ, and the sense faculty and the sense consciousness, all these different elements that go together. And so the, it's light that's coming in our eyes, not things. And the light registers in our brain, but it, 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 it registers an impression in our brain that our brain then manipulates right. and measures against other perceptions that it had and says, uh, oh, I recognize that one. And that's why it registered as corduroy for me. Right. But what I was seeing was stripes of two different colors. Right. And so, so truly, we, we infer depth, but we, it's impossible to see depth. Right. Uh, and, and it's a good practice to do that kind of analytical meditation and just question what we're seeing. Um, and, and even with people that I work with who aren't meditation students, I say, I ask them, where are you seeing that? Are you seeing that over there? Well, you can't see, or, or, and this is a question that comes up in analytical meditation. Are your eyes reaching out to touch what they're seeing? Clearly not. It's coming, it's something coming in through your eyes. Are your ears reaching out to hear. So where do you see things? Right. Where do you hear things? Um, 
and then we move closer to ourselves. We say, well, where do you feel things? Do you feel them in your fingers? Not possible because your finger doesn't have consciousness. And so that's why you, Andrew was talking about the artificial limbs. Uh, even after someone has an amputation, they, their brain remembers a feeling that it identifies as finger. And so all of these are happening in our, and they're not even happening in our brain because our brain is where the, the um, nerve endings send their messages, whether it's the optic nerve or the oral nerve or, or the nerves in your, anywhere in your body or your nose, olfactory nerve. Um, it's in your mind that meshes them with previous experiences and, and it's the skandhas and it's the, the fourth skanda formation that then creates the realm that we live in, which is the fifth skanda. So um, that's a really helpful relationship to reality to keep asking in the same way that we ask the more philosophical, who am I? We can actually ask, what am I see? Where am I seeing that? Where am I hearing this? Where am I feeling it? and realize that everything is mind in that way. That's the yeah. Yogacarya approach. Yeah, so. that's terrific. And, those, and these investigations are also, you know, they may seem like, oh yeah, I know the answer or whatever, but they're really powerful if you really take them to heart and you engage in them because they will then radically challenge. It's a little bit, you know, it goes back all the way to Socrates and his Socratic method and mm -hmm. in, in Greek intellectual um, rigor where you really just start to look at things that you take as givens and you realize that they aren't givens, they're constructs, um, social, cultural, phenomenological constructs. And, and then in so doing, you, you slowly deconstruct, you slowly deconstruct, you let go, you deconstruct. And then that way, when all the, the construction projects fall away, then you're left with truth, then you're left with reality. Um, and you have glimpses like Katie did or others do when you start to really touch what's below all that. But engaging in these investigations is highly recommended for people who have this type of predisposition towards inquiry, investigation, analysis. They're, they're very powerful. The last thing I wanted to, to share is the most important thing that this teaches you is to have a sense of humor <laughs> about your constructs. Yeah, no kidding. Sense of humor about what it is that you're making of these experiences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And therefore a sense of humility and tolerance for other contracts, constructs and how they're so different. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Love that backdrop, by the way. Uh, that is the monastery in Vancouver, Trunga Rinpoche's monastery. And they just, oh. had their that's the uh, picture of their 10th anniversary celebration. Oh, nice. Beautiful. I have not been up there yet. I'll have to go. Thanks, my friend. Appreciate it. Okay. Andy, anybody else? Oh, yeah. Uh, next up is uh, Florian. Oh my gosh, hello, thank you. Hey there. Hi there, uh, I appreciate those hang, hangouts a lot and I also pre-ordered the book and wanted to also say thank you to Andy, Katie, moderator. I do know that sometimes it's really dif difficult in the background to have everything smooth so that we can have this really nice experience. Well said, thank you my friend. Okay, and so um, my question would be if I'm in the for example, I have the work, working thesis that if I'm in the, in the dream state, that whatever I'm meeting is a projection of my mind. Most. And that the mo yeah, most, so I say like 99%. Uh, 
how do I know if I'm not meeting the projection of my own mind? And yeah. this could be true not only in the dream state, but any other state. If you found a way, that would be my question. Yeah, that's a good question, my friend. Um, yeah, so first of all, I agree with you. Um, you know, I said at the outset that what you meet in your mind is solipsistic, it is your mind. Well, from a Western point of view, of course, that's what they say standardly. But in, in more open dimensions of which I, I subscribe um, and is what you seem to be suggesting, um, my experience also bears out that you, you can meet things that don't come from you. Mm -hmm. um, and so how you suss that out, my friend, is it's somewhat self-evident in my experience. But again, this, this is a really tricky thing to really give standard metrics for. I can only tell you how I've registered in my own bandwidth where, where I have certain dreams. And again, if you read the literature, I have to throw this. If you read the literature, you, you realize it, this kind of stuff takes place all the time in the wisdom traditions where, you know, Avalokiteshvara came to me last night. You know, Padmasambhava came to me last night. Well, I, I find this, you know, I, I, I remain agnostic on so many of these issues. Um, you know, like with this... Uh, conversation I'm releasing in a couple of weeks with Elizabeth Namgyal, the power of an open question. There is room in, in my worldview for this influx of so-called external agency in, in the dream state and others, for sure. How one susses that out is, is not so easy to register. I can only tell you, again, from my own experience, um, I would usually wake up from an encounter like that with, uh, with a, just a, an, an intuition, a sense of just ineffable knowing that, you know, that didn't come from me. Um, and, you know, outside of that, I don't know anybody that can tell you with complete authority because very often, and here's the way your question relates to like the phenomenal world at large, and this gets a little bit mystical, esoteric, and actually magical. And so here's the way to extend it even further, my friend, is that in, in um, the Buddhist tradition, things like Pure Land teachings and the like, um, and again, once you start to get sensitized to this and read the literature, there are often references of experiences um, where certain phenomenal appearances in this waking life can arise that, again, don't come from you, don't even come from this world. They, they can come from different dimensions. They can come from different realized beings um, that actually bring about, it's called diversified nirmanakaya. There's actually a name for it where you can have these types of experiences. And, and, and this is such a baffling thing for me, just to show you, I had exactly the same question. And I might've shared the story because it's so freaking funny. I had this exact same question you did. I once asked it to Pundar Rinpoche because when I first heard these teachings, I, I just, I was so incredulous, you know, because he was saying, well, you know, you can have, you can have these experiences where certain things appear, medicine appears, even a breeze appears. And he said, this is not coming, this is coming from the Buddha or whatever. And, and I, you know, with my kind of nerdy intellect going, are you effing kidding me? And so, so I asked Rinpoche, uh, I said, Rinpoche, you know, I, I just cannot wrap my mind around this. So, and so I said, okay, how do I know? Like if I have an experience of what's called, again, this diversified, variegated Nirmanakaya, how do I know? And, and he said something just hysterical. He said, well, it's like when you, when you cross over a bridge, and you turn around and the bridge is no longer there. <laughs> it's like, hey, thanks, dude, man. That's like really helpful, right? 
So, you know, on one level, there's some, there's some ineffable magic and beauty around not being able to answer that, that very often if you believe in this sort of thing, which from a Western tradition is just woolly metaphysics, the world then becomes really magical. You know, the ability, um, in fact, in the Pure Land traditions, there's one reason to go to a Pure Land is to have this kind of power, if you believe in this, to actually come back and, and infiltrate another person's dream to actually work with their physical environment to bring about these, you know, completely magical types of experiences. And so for me, I, I remain open around this. I can't speak with real authority. To me, it's more just surrendering to the magic, the wonder that of this, of this even possibility that it's possible that if you open your mind and heart to this extent, you feel the power of grace, blessing, whatever you want to call it, where certain, you know, dimensions. And again, I like working with this kind of stuff because it challenges and stretches my views of what I consider conventional ontological reality, right? It challenges my materialistic view. These sort of tenets just shatter that. I mean, from a Western point of view, this is just insane. Well, I think reifying everything into materialistic limitations, that's the insanity. Opening to this kind of magic and wonder, that's the real beauty. And so I'm not sure where else I can take that, my friend, because um, I can tell you my own personal registration, registers of these experiences, but I don't have a, a, like a criteria book for how you can make these kind of assessments. Yeah, the, the thing, I copy those experiences. Like sometimes I do wonder that those encounters are maybe golden shadow aspects I'm meeting and I'm so surprised of them. And that beside, I'd, maybe that would be a, a second question if that would be time for that. If let's assume that there is a being out there and how do I know that the agenda is like one of loving kindness towards? Because yeah. it's, not, it's not always that way. Yeah. Are you a student of Tibetan Buddhism by any chance? Are you a student? I'm, I'm a student of uh, Charlie Morley and I'm... Oh uh, yeah, Charlie's great. Yeah, yeah Charlie, you, you should have a chat with Charlie about this. So I do, again, I already had. Yeah, so you, you know, you're entering into the world of deep mystical tantric Buddhism here. And so the, again, I, I, at this point, I'm talking as a spokesperson um, of my understanding. Not all these agendas are in fact beneficent. Um, as you know, there are confused entities that can have nefarious agendas um, that can deleteriously affect you. And so, uh, yeah, whew, where to go with this? You know, it's, it's not always healthy. Um, the vast majority of the time, it, in my experience, it tends to be, but not always. And so, again, I'm just not sure how far to go with this because I don't mm -hmm. want to have too much roadkill. You know, when I start talking about these kind of otherworldly <laughs> metaphysical things, I, I look at the, the registration list and it starts to click away when people go, okay, I was with this guy until he started talking about this <laughs> stuff. So I just have to be a little bit careful how far, you know, it's, what, what's the, mm. I, I, I always throw this into the mix. It's important to have a really open mind, but if your mind is too open, your brains will fall out. And, and so we start to run up against the limits of credulity here. And, and so, mm. Maybe I'll just leave it for there for now. Is that okay, my friend? No, that's that's super helpful for me. That already answered. Yeah, cool. My, my, I'm, I'm my, happy my to theory. go with this in more depth, but this is the certain sort of thing. If I was in a public setting, I would probably I say, hey, dude, let's go for a walk. Let me have dinner with you. Because mm -hmm. otherwise people are going to look at me and go, man, I thought this guy was kind of onto it, but he's just a kook. <laughs> so so I may be a kook, but you know, I'm, I'm a kook with a lineage. So 
I'll, I'll let that one go for now, okay, my friend? I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. <laughs> All right. And uh, next with the audio will be Eric. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you again. Hey, Eric, bud. Um, so I was thinking about the six yogas of Naropa and how they say you should start with Tumo before you're doing the main uh, sleep, dream yoga, and so forth. And I'm wondering, what's the rationale for that? What's yeah. the... Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's a number of reasons for that. A little bit technical question. So the Naro Chudrik, the six yogas, dream yoga is, is a, um, this is worth throwing into the mix because um, dream yoga, let alone sleep yoga, illusory form and bardo yoga, they're all part of the family of the six yogas. They're very classic kagyu, what's called completion stage with characteristic set of practices. And so uh, uh, just briefly, Chandali, Tumo, it's called the main beam. It's the first practice, and it's considered the first for a number of reasons. Um, one is that when you're working with dream yoga within the context of the six yogas, you're working specifically with dream yoga as an inner yoga. And to really access the inner system, you have to, early, I should say, it's highly suggested that you access, become familiar with it, clean it up through the practice of Tumo, Chandali, because that's what that practice does. That's a wrathful form of liberation that's designed to really go in and break up the nadis, break up the winds, open the channels, get things moving. Um, and so that's one colossal reason why you start with Chandali. You, you literally dissolve, burn up the, the, uh, the defilements in the subtle body system that purifies it, that accesses, makes the, um, then the remaining five practices much more workable because in a certain way, they're all subsets of this inner yoga family. The other reason is, uh, you know, each one of these yogas is, as you may or may not know, but each one of them is just a culmination or culminates in the experience of, of um, Mahamudra, the nature of mind. Each one of them has that fruition. And so, you know, sometimes accessing that with Chandali at the outset is actually a little bit easier. And then from there, you have a greater sense of recognition. So for those two principal reasons, and there are others, um, the main one really being that Chandali, the inner heat yogas, works to access, become familiar with, clean out, purify, activate the inner subtle body. Once that's done, then you can start to do all this inner subtle body stuff, which then makes dream yoga uh, much, much more workable. Okay? Is there a way to like tell if your subtle body is kind of all caught up or not? Like how, how can you get a sense for like- Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's a hundred ways to do that. You know, um, there are outer, outer body um, correlates and experiences to inner body states. I mean, so again, these are just colossal questions. One is along these lines, you know, that if you see the world dualistically, you're still um, all kind of caught up with, with subtle body, body uh, kind of pathologies, you could say, or restrictions. And so this is such a big question, Eric, that, that fundamentally the way you see the world has, has deep um, subtle body correlates. And when you start to become really sensitive to the subtle body and its relationship to your outer, you know, kind of um, phenomenal display and experience, you'll start to see how your subtle body affects it. And so you know, if you're still seeing the world dualistically, if you're still ridden with kleshas, if you still, you know, have all these habitual tendencies, thought patterns and the like, and, and I say this with some tongue in cheek because that basically defines all of us, then our subtle body is still pretty tied up, pretty knotted up. 
you know, it's been tied up for, if you believe in this stuff, for a super long time. And so it takes a while for all this stuff to kind of loosen up, relax, become undone. And, you know, the, the Chandali practice just accelerates that process, um, which is why it's a little bit slightly risky practice because you're going so directly into the subtle body basis of these things that it can be a little bit dangerous. So Chandali is one of the practices where you, you don't want to play around with this one unless you have real um, guidance and understanding because you can get a little bit burned with this. It's such a powerful practice. It can, it can cause some problems. So um, I'm not sure where else you want to go with this, my friend, but you know, there, there's so much, so much more to say. Like, I mean, if you breathe through the two side nostrils, the resulting view is one of duality. If all the winds enter the central channel, the resulting view is one of non-duality. So there's just an infinite variety of, of ways that your outer experience is an expression of this inner, these inner processes. And going into that is just, just, again, it's just a really big topic, all the different types of classifications of like, what's happening in your subtle body, how is that affecting your outer world? Um, so, but something like that, just a finger paint. Okay. Again, it's another one of these just incredibly beautiful, deep questions. You know, you talk, start talking about the six yogas, you're, you know, you're introducing just a really vast, beautiful topic. But I think that what I'm picking up from you, I think that's the, maybe something that's worth sharing, something along those lines. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, thanks, bud. Okay, we got time for a couple more. All right, great. Um, next with the audio will be Sophie. Hi. 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 I just wanted to ask, you know, when we're talking about perception and seeing the world as non-dual, uh -huh. I'm just like when you're doing these teachings online, right. or when you're walking around in the world, are you, are you in that you're, hold up, you're breaking up. Of when you see the world, you, you broke up for the last 10 seconds or I didn't hear a word you said. Try it again. Oh, sorry. That's okay. When Try you talk. see the world, when you're, when you're looking online at all yep. of us, yep. how, are you, how are you seeing things if you're in awakened awareness? How do you see it? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a really confused schmuck, so I see it the way everybody else does, right? <laughs> um, this is a typical thing to say. First of all, I don't want to be particularly revelatory about, you know, my levels of experience or lack thereof. I think the levels of my confusion and neurosis, those are really evident and fully on display. <laughs> so you can get a pretty decent sense of where I stand. But here's the thing, uh, you know, let humor set aside is let me just put it this way. You definitely do start to see things differently. Um, I mean, for sure. Uh, and and from that is born just, you know, all these marvelous things that the wisdom traditions say, in fact, are correlates to seeing the world with a larger opened aperture of awareness. You're, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about me now. You're just more aware, you're more in tune, you're more sensitive, you're more awake. You can tune in to what's happening more clearly. Um, you know, like the, the sort of physiology, like what do you really see? Um, I'm not entirely sure I actually want to go there, um, but all I can tell you is that you, one really does quite literally see the world a different way. 
that's not a metaphor. Um, and then from that is, is brought about, you know, what's called, literally it's called pure perception. I mean, you, you see the world in, in the most beautiful natural ways and they seem, they might seem mystical, they may seem altered, but they're actually very natural. This is the altered state. <laughs> this is the altered state. Same are, are you, you, I'm sorry? I was just gonna say, are you uh, um, stable in that perception though? I'm just curious because I find myself shifting back and forth. Yeah, everybody shifts back and forth. The, the only person who's stable in that state is a Buddha. So one, one of the things that, that you know, actually constitutes the path um, after you have this kind of opening which again, it's not, it's not, this is, there's nothing special here. In fact, it's super ordinary. But just to show you, when you have that glimpse, that's what's called the first ground, um, which is interesting, Bhumi, the first groundless ground. That's just the start in a certain way. Then you have nine, you know, you, you, know, you have nine more grounds, nine, what are called the 10 Bhumis. And then what constitutes progression along these 10 Bhumis, these 10 stages of stability, is, is just an increased sense of stability, refinement, openness, until that lens is open all the time. But right now what you're saying, that's the important point, is that we have these glimpses, um, and then what happens is because of the power of habit, the power of karma, then we close down again. Um, that's just the way it works. Uh, and, and so then we just continue to open, maybe we close down a little bit less, maybe we're open a little bit more. And then eventually we'll find that instead of defaulting into selfishness, we're defaulting into selflessness. We're open more and more and more. And then, you know, one consequence of that is, is more and more of your life just naturally becomes your path. Your, your, your entire life just becomes your practice and your path. I think that's maybe the, the important point. You know, I'm always extremely careful. And also when people espouse these kind of metrics, I get really um, a bit nervous and leery about that sort of thing. On one level, we can in fact be inspired by um, the levels of awareness of other people, but these are never overtly proclaimed. At least they shouldn't be. If they are, I think something's a bit amiss. They're, they're actually proclaimed by the way that person lives their life. You know, you want, you want to know how realized a person is, talk to their spousal unit, talk to their family. Talk to people around them, you know, how compassionate are they? How much do they vote themselves for the benefit of others? How selfless are they? That's where you're going to see the real metrics for realization. It's not somebody coming up here and saying, oh, you know, I can realize my, my, my non-dual vision 24-7. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, the real, the truly realized masters, what do they say in Taoism? Those who speak do not know. Those who know do not speak. Um, and there's real, there's real credibility to that one. So with that said, actually, if I say anything at this point, I've caught my, I've painted myself into a corner, right? <laughs> but I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And uh, next with the audio will be Nelson. Yeah. Uh, hello, everybody. Hi, Nelson. So my question is like uh, I knew about lucid dreaming like 15 years ago, and I practiced for a while uh, with the uh, Stephen Labert's book. Oh, nice! Yeah. But but for me, I, I've never like in my whole life it's been very difficult to remember dreams. Almost sure. never. Yeah. That time, after I, I tried for a while, I had lucid dreams. But after that, I felt like 
tired the whole day. It was very tiresome for me, like this experience. So I eventually I quit. After that, years later, I met Tibetan Buddhism, I've done Nandro and Shamatha, uh, and now I want to reconnect with Lucy Greenman. But I'm a, a, bit, a, a bit afraid of this, like, tiresomeness being tired all day uh, after trying to, to remember dreams. So I don't know if you have any recommendation or anything to say about this being so tired of uh, trying to remember dreams and, and be lucid. So I, I'm, I I'm, if, and, and you're, again, I'm having for the, uh, we're having some rare technical problems. Um, I'm just having a slightly hard time hearing you. So maybe just repeat the, the question a little bit more slowly because it's like every third word or so is just kind of fading out on me and I'm actually not hearing what you're saying. Can you just try it again? Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, maybe talk a little bit slower, um, and I should be able to at least pick out the words, because otherwise, they're literally, they're just dropping off, and I'm not hearing them. Okay, so my experience years before was uh, being very tired during the day if yeah. I try to remember my dreams. So I don't know if you have any recommendation about, if this, is this normal? Uh, or do yeah. you have any recommendation? So, so if I hear you right, you know, you're tired when you're trying to, rec to remember your dreams. Um, well, first of all, there's a number of ways to cultivate dream recall. They shouldn't necessarily make you tired. Um, if you're finding yourself, you know, fatigued like that during the day, it could be that you're trying too hard. Um, you know, in the world of lucid dreaming, as in the world of meditation, there's a very helpful rule of saying, you know, not too tight, not too loose. And so sometimes when, especially for us Westerners, Western type people, um, sometimes we try too hard. And so that could be just something to throw into the kitty to, you know, see if that lands with you. Um, in terms of developing dream recall, a number of things can be done. Um, if you're not doing these already, um, a dream journal, incredibly helpful. Um, working with daytime meditation, very helpful because, uh, you know, meditation practice altogether literally sometimes is translated as uh, drempa, as, as recollection, remembrance. Meditation increases faculties of memory. Um, in fact, meditation masters are memory masters. And so you can cultivate the memory muscle. You can do that through meditation. You can cultivate that through the practice of what's called prospective memory. There are exercises that do that. And, you know, again, if I'm hearing your question properly, another really great way to work with increasing dream recall is standard practice is throughout the day, just stop every now and again, literally just stop in your tracks, pause, turn the lens of your mind back in and see like, what was I just thinking for the last minute? See if you can just rewind the, the spool of your mind. Where was my mind for that last minute? And if you start to do all these things, they, they, you, will, you will probably notice that your memory is, is, is heightening, sharpening. And also along these lines, the, the, the other thing to work with here, conversely with this, is to, to try to practice forgetfulness less and less. In other words, don't capitulate to all your impulses for distraction. So I mentioned this yesterday in our, in our group. Every time you feel the urge to grab your phone and you capitulate to that, you're actually practicing a type of mindlessness. 
So this is just another way to say what I was saying earlier. Be a little bit more sensitized to how it is that, that we are all in a certain way practicing a certain form of forgetfulness. Every time we capitulate to distracted thought, every time we give in to impulse. And if you start to do those things, you notice that your memory will probably start to increase. Um, you will probably start to recollect your dreams even more. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's what comes to mind around that. Does that make sense? And then you'll also pro probably find yourself, you know, not being so exhausted during the day. So are you sleeping okay? And then you're just finding yourself tired during the day? I mean, why do, why do you feel like you're tired during the day? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, yeah, the, the experience was like, I was tired because of the effort of trying to yeah. remember. Even yeah, I, I, yeah, that's I what I'm intuiting. Yeah, so just basically uh, lighten up a little bit. You know, this is, um, dream yoga, lucid dreaming is difficult because it's so subtle. And sometimes, you know, this is where we have to each find our own way. If we bring these kind of heavy-handed, kind of grosser levels of, of uh, aspiration and ambition, sometimes it can actually backfire. Um, and so what I might recommend is just having a more playful, open uh, relationship to it. Maybe loosen up a little bit, lighten up, give yourself a little bit of a break. And, and the most important thing is just the kind of steadiness, you know, not just like hammering it too hard. Because if we try too hard, it backfires in this way. So I would recommend relaxing a little bit more, not taking it quite so seriously, play with it a little bit more, have fun with it, conjoin that with some of the other suggestions I recommended. And I suspect you'll, you'll have some success that way. Um, that's, you know, my intuition is, you know, just a little bit too tight. Most of us in the West are that way. We just try too hard. Um, so a little more spacious, a little bit open, more relaxed. And then you may find that, uh, you know, the memories just start to come. Um, so I would recommend that. And then, you know, there are other tips and tricks, but I, those are the ones that come most immediately to mind. Okay. Okay. If I'm understanding correctly, my experience with, with uh, Chamata has been at the beginning, I was very tight and eventually I, I come to relax and yeah. just like, well, I mean, more relaxed. It's kind of similar with dreams. Well, I didn't hear the very last thing you said, but you know, the fact that, that you were too tight with your shamatha, that would also make a, more sense to me. Um, but I, I literally just didn't hear the very last thing you said. Yeah, with shamatha, eventually I've come to relax. Yeah. And just dwell on the, on the meditation, not too tight. Yeah, so that's beautiful. It's yep. similar what you recommended, but applying these to dreams. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's one of the near enemies, I have to say. It's one of the near enemies of shamatha. Shamatha is a tremendous, tremendously powerful practice. But one near enemy of shamatha is that, in fact, it can be a little bit too tight, too kind of controlled. Um, yeah, so I think you just said it at the very end, that the relationship that you brought to your Shamatha, now you could bring to your dreams. In other words, open, relax a little bit, loosen up, light, lighten up a little bit. And you may find that, again, you know, somewhere in that not too, not too tight, not too loose, you're a little bit too tight, maybe go a little bit towards the loose end, and then you'll find your sweet spot. You'll find your way. But, and, you know, this is super common. We're, we're all different. We all have to find our way. And we do that by asking questions like this and stumbling and tripping and falling and then, you know, just keeping going with a steady, open 
and, and playful attitude, playful attitude, you know, where you just enjoy it, relax a little bit, lighten up. Okay, my friend. Thank you. All right. Hey, thanks everybody. Um, Andy, if there are people that I didn't get to, please cue them up for next time. Um, I plan to be here next week as well. And we'll send out a little announcement whether we change to the, the Thursday um, evening session for next week or not. So stay tuned to that. We'll let you know. But I do have to go. And if there are people that I didn't get to, um, Andy will we'll put you at the top of the queue for next time and, and we'll get to you next time around. So nice to see everybody again. Um, take care of yourself. Pleasant dreams. Have a great week and uh, hope to see you next week. Ciao.